Welcome back. Today I sit down with Professor Darren Kandel, one of the world's leading scientists studying creatine. When you look at the research in younger individuals, creatine was shown to increase muscle strength. It had beneficial effects on muscle mass and lean tissue mass. And of course, it improved some passive functionality. Those individuals who took creatine before they did the race, they had a huge reduction in the amount of those inflammatory uh, proteins compared to placebo. The safety profile of creatine is, is excellent. We've looked at liver and kidney for multiple years. And even at higher dosages, there's no greater adverse effects compared to placebo. This episode brings us up to date with the latest research out of Darren's lab focused on creatine supplementation and bone health, and also serves as a refresher, doubling back over some of the things that Professor Eric Rawson shared with us back in episode 212. In this exchange, you will learn what creatine is, how much our body makes, differences between creatine stores in omnivores and vegetarians, how creatine affects muscle, bone and brain health, the optimal dosing strategy, including the amount and timing, how to reduce water retention from creatine, if creatine increases hair loss, if creatine strains the liver and kidneys, and much more. Enjoy. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends 
and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. I understand from doing a little bit of, uh, of research into your career so far that you did your masters with filth chili bag. I didn't realize that. Is is that what got you initially interested in studying supplements and eventually becoming interested in creatine? Yeah, um, I think Phil is one of the best researchers in addition to creatine researcher focus. He does a lot of elegant work. And uh, I actually, there was another colleague of mine, Dr. Darren Burke, who's more moved into industry. And we did some of the first studies in vegetarians and creatine with muscle biopsies. And um, I sort of was looking at the amino acid glutamine. At the time, glutamine seemed to be the biggest rage. Um, and we wanted to see could it affect or, or improve uh, resistance training performance. And and we were kind of a seminal study. We gave a very high dose of glutamine and it kind of did nothing. Um, and at the same time, you say, okay, well, there's a non-essential amino acids, which makes sense from a resistance training standpoint. It didn't really have any effect. And at the same time, creatine was really emerging uh, from professional athletes to uh, recreationally athletes. And I sort of piggybacked off Dar- Darren Burke and Phil Chilbeck's interest on creatine. And I've been doing it now for the last two, two and a half decades. And uh, we've sort of scratched the surface of the iceberg, so to speak. So your research into glutamine left you feeling that this was not an effective supplement. I remember in my early 20s, it was something everyone everyone that was in the gym that was trying to put on a bit of muscle and strength, yeah. you know, everyone was supplementing with glutamine at that time. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it might have some potential impact for decreasing inflammation in long, long duration. It may help in metabolic uh, conditions, sepsis or cancer, but to the healthy individual, it's probably one of the most worthless things you could buy. Um, and then there's been study after study on that, that, um, and it makes sense. It's non-essential amino acids. So why would it have any benefit? And, uh, as much as I was disappointed that not finding results, my, uh, Phil suggested, you know, not finding a result is just as important. And that has probably more impact, uh, to society. So you kind of emphasize there the fact that glutamine is non-essential. So with, with that in mind, it's not that surprising that supplementing it doesn't seem to have a huge effect because your body can synthesize it. But how how is that different to creatine? You know, why 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 the interest in creatine if if the body can also synthesize creatine? Yeah, so creatine's a little unique and, and it's not that far off. It's made of three amino acids: arginine, glycine, and methionine, or methionine. So a combination of non-essential and essential. But this is a bit interesting where glutamine would have come into the body and it's metabolized. Um, creatine sort of likes to stay intact. And in other words, it doesn't really get broken down to those three amino acids. Um, and the other thing is some will argue that creatine is conditionally essential. I don't have a problem with that um, in certain circumstances. But I, I would also argue vegans and vegetarians and those on a plant-based diet which natural synthesis of creatine can have long, healthy lives and perform very well from an exercise perspective. What we're starting to see in the last, geez, 30, 40 years is that increased creatine, especially in the muscle, can give greater benefits. So it may be okay to just have a maintenance being naturally synthesized through the diet, but taking in more seems to provide some beneficial effects. So someone might be listening to that and and thinking, if the body can can produce its own creatine a certain amount 
why why would we need a direct source of creatine from food or a supplement? Why wouldn't the body just produce the optimal amount? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question for an evolutionary biologist. I wish it did produce more. But the other thing that we don't usually discuss, and this can get some false positives when you go to your doctor when your annual physical is, as much as we produce about one to three grams primarily in the liver and or brain, we also excrete about that much is a form of creatinine. So there's a nice equal balance. Uh, and then in 1996, a couple of researchers that are the most famous, Eric, or, uh, Eric Holtman and Roger Harris, clearly showed that if you're taking a little bit more, uh, that can actually accumulate. Right? So there's the big difference. Accumulate in our tissues, primarily muscle. And then if the muscle has more of this energy currency, maybe you can perform more repetitions. You can recover quicker. And over time, it may allow the individual to get bigger, stronger, faster. So you can also get creatine in the diet, but it's primarily only in red meat and seafood. So yes, do you need supplementation? The answer is no. Is it difficult to get the amount needed to show some beneficial effects? It is you would probably have to consume at least one to two servings of red meat or seafood a day. And then what about the majority of the population, vegetarians, vegans, uh, those emphasizing a plant-based diet, maybe they're allergic to seafood. Those all have issues. So I think it's one of the, the ingredients or compounds where supplementation might be just the easiest. It's kind of like uh, you know, a protein shake. Some people say it's very hard for me to get my total daily amount of protein through food. Is it okay to have a, a, a whey protein shake or a, a whatever? And I'm like, of course, if you're trying to achieve a certain amount, I see no reason why that's difficult. Um, but the cost of food worldwide is, is uh, really high. Uh, environmental sustainability, ethical treatment of animals. There's a lot of issues why people say, hey, you know what? I can get it through red meat or seafood or commercially manufactured creatine. My understanding, and you kind of just spoke to this, is that if we don't have creatine in our diet, the amount that would be in, say, an average diet, which I think is about one gram a day, is that right? About one to three. Now, if you're on a carnivore diet, you're going to be taking more. But just say the average omnivore who consumes a bit of, of red meat or seafood, maybe one to two, maybe three grams a day at most. Right, so my understanding is if you don't have that amount in your diet or you're not taking a supplement, that our body would only be able to replace about half of the creatine that it's using every day. Is that right? It's a rough estimate. So some people will excrete more creatine in the form of creatinine compared to others. Uh, a lot of that has to do with how much muscle mass they also have, but it also has to do with activity. So the more activity you have, the more creatine will be recycled in the muscle. Um, of course, that leads to also synthesis as well. But you're right, you kind of need a combination of natural synthesis, diet, and then see where we're at. So you've often hear or heard of individuals who are responders or non-responders to creatine. A lot of people say, I responded really well. I maybe increased body weight and I got a really good benefit. Others will say, geez, for no apparent reason, I took creatine supplementation and I didn't notice any effect. So it has to be based on the equal distribution or uh, uh, equilibrium of all three of those factors. Right. So whether you're a non-responder or a hyper-responder is mostly determined by your baseline 
sort of dietary intake of creatine and your creatine stores or are there other factors like genetics? Yeah, that, that's primarily what's dictated, but there's about three other things that can influence it. So aging. So the theory is we have a lot of creatine stored in these large muscle fibers called type two. And the theory with aging, unfortunately, um, when we get around the fourth or fifth decade, we start to lose these massive muscle fibers. So the theory is creatine may be slightly impaired in older adults. And we've, uh, with Phil Chilibeck, we put out a good review on that, primarily in the lower limbs. The other is sex. We think that females, for some reason, sorry, biological females with the XX chromosome, they might have a slight impairment in the ability to respond. We're not sure if estrogen's involved, and that's an area that's uh, controversial, but there is some evidence. Um, and the other seems to be uh, the amount of red meat or activity that they're doing. So if your diet is low in red meat or seafood, you may respond better. Whereas if you have higher amounts, you're going to respond less. So it's kind of the, how much you have genetically, your diet, biological sex, and maybe activity level. Those are the four things we think really dictate your responsiveness. Where did the early interest in creatine, you know, take us back into, I guess, some of the history books here. Um, what did the early science looking at creatine and, and human health look like? Yeah, it was so interesting. Discovered in 1832 by a French biochemist, and then we had a lag of about 50 years before some biochemists and food uh, biologists started to extract this compound from uh, meat. It was discovered actually before ATP, which is ironic. And then there was a lag. We sort of knew what the molecule was. We kind of theorized um, that it helped maintain ATP uh, or the energy currency of our cell. And then when some professional athletes, Linford Christie and some Major League Baseball players in the U.S. started to say they were taking creatine, a lot of people noticed that their performance went up. And then research supported it by Roger Harrison, Eric Holtman, and a few others, Paul Greenhalf, uh, the list goes on and on, clearly showing that if you were to supplement your diet, creatine will get in the muscle. And of course, if you have more creatine in the muscle, it will help maintain ATP during exercise. So it was really designed for weightlifters. They're in the gym doing multiple sets, very heavy weight. It allowed those individuals to potentially put on or increase exercise volume. And then when you ask these individuals on creatine, they say they, they seem to be able to recover quicker. And we weren't really sure the mechanisms why that is. And it's really prevalent in a long distance aerobic athletes. Um, so now it seems to be viable for most athletes and of course, the big area in the last 20 years is the health impact. Uh, we sort of got bored with all the exercise. And then we said, well, geez, you know, what about the aging individual whose muscle and bone is losing? What about the person diagnosed with concussion? So we've kind of opened Pandora's box and we're starting to see creatine be uh, used from a medical and health application. Are those mechanisms that might explain improved recovery, are they better understood today? They're slightly better understood today, but they're certainly better understood in the aerobic exercise. So this is quite interesting. When we are lifting weights very heavily, we always think it's very uh, inflammatory. But the thing with re regular resistance training, it actually improves your immune system. And we release these proteins called cytokines. So the theory here was that um, creatine has been shown to have some anti-catabolic or anti-inflammatory effects, but it's only been shown in long duration um, cardio, such as uh, Ironman or triathlon. And that kind of makes sense. If you're gonna put your body through 40 kilograms or 40 kilometers 
or more of a continuous aerobic exercise is going to be very inflammatory. Um, a lot of catabolic uh, enzymes and hormones will be released. And when you look at those studies, those individuals who took creatine before they did the race, they had a huge reduction in the amount of those inflammatory uh, proteins compared to placebo. So it sort of provided some evidence we have a little bit of recovery aspects to creatine. But when we look at acute resistance training, you know, you do a set for maybe 10, 12 seconds, you rest for three minutes. I think that recovery there is not catabolic enough to induce inf inflammation and creatine has not been shown to reduce inflammation with resistance training. Those studies that have looked at recovery, mm -hmm. have they looked at how that impacts performance outcomes? That's an excellent question. So they haven't looked at it, the ability to subsequently perform a race quicker or recover more. They just simply looked at the um, blood biomarkers. That's a really good idea. The theory is that if you could recover quicker, could you enhance performance over time? With the upcoming Olympics, a lot of athletes are combining aerobic and resistance training. Could this be a recovery agent to allow them to train at a really high volume? Those studies need to be performed, yeah. You mentioned before that over the, the last few decades, there's been a lot of interest in um, creatine and other aspects of health outside of, of muscle mass and, and strength, where a lot of the early research has been focused. And in 2019, you wrote a review about creatine and healthy aging. And one of the things that you state is that creatine supplementation can have a positive effect on aging muscle. What do you mean exactly by a positive effect on aging muscle? Yeah, it's a good question because I consider aging the fourth decade and above, and I'm 46, so I fall into that category, unfortunately. But the biological process of aging with inflam aging or, or heightened inflammation, unfortunately, we lose three things primarily from a soft tissue. We decrease strength. We now know we lose muscle mass, or you could argue lean tissue in that category. And then, of course, functional uh, ability, the ability to perform activities of daily living. And those three uh, caveats of sarcopenia really have a catastrophic effect on our ability to live long, healthy uh, uh, li lifestyles. And so, unfortunately, with exercise or lack of, we lose all three of those aspects. And then when you look at the research in younger individuals, creatine was shown to perform all three of those categories. It increased muscle strength. It had beneficial effects on muscle mass and lean tissue mass. And of course, it improved some passive functionality. And then when you look at the smaller body of research in older adults, sure enough, it had all those beneficial effects as well. And again, it improved measures of strength, muscle mass, lean tissue mass, and functional ability. So we theorize it has some beneficial effects for the aging body. What hasn't been shown is diagnose sarcopenic adults where we take an adult coming into the clinic and diagnose them with a specific criteria. Can creatine have specific anti-sarcopenic effects? Uh, we've applied to the government to do that study um, and we're hoping to get funding down, down the road. And that may have applications for offsetting frailty, um, bed rest, long-term care facility um, uptake. So we're trying to improve healthy aging from exercise and creatine. But at the end of the day, any benefits that creatine provides, 98% is coming from resistance exercise. Maybe two to 5%, if you want to fluctuate those, is coming from creatine. You got to have the stimulus from exercise to be there. So, so right now, the 
the kind of body of, of research looking at this is pulling bits of information from younger adults and the effect that we see creatine has on muscle mass and strength in the context of doing resistance training. And so we're assuming that creatine has a similar effect in older people. And because we know that, you know, from the fifth decade on that people are losing a considerable amount of, of muscle mass and that has a, has a, a, a downstream effect on metabolic health and, and risk of falls, that supplementing with creatine and resistance training in this population might be able to kind of curb some of that muscle loss and the risk of sarcopenia and the metabolic consequences that come with that. Yes, that's correct. Just for clarification, though, we probably have, or there is probably about 20 to 30 papers or studies specifically in older adults. So we had all that just, uh, justification or foundational information from younger adults, but there's probably 20 to 30 studies that have looked at specifically creatine and exercise in older adults. And we sort of have an emerging area uh, of response. The issue with individual studies is they're usually small sample size. So that's why there's about five meta-analyses that have been published now that have looked at all the data in individual studies of older adults. And collectively, they're showing an increase in lean tissue strength and functionality. So we actually have good data in younger individuals and some emerging um, research in older adults as well. One of the things that I spoke to Stuart Phillips about with regards to the elderly and resistance training was that they, they may require more protein to get the same muscle protein synthesis response because of anabolic resistance. Is is this a, a similar kind of scenario with regards to creatine? Is it likely that the dosing for a young or midlife adult might be different to someone that's in their fifth, sixth, seventh or eighth decade of life? Yeah, it's very plausible from three aspects. So a review we uh, published, me and Dr. Schillebeck, we clearly showed that the vastus lateralis or the big muscles in the quadricep when you're doing leg press or squat, they seem to be jeopardized by creatine kinetics uh, more than other muscles. So there could be some line of evidence to suggest that aging does impair creatine kinetics. So you might think, okay, they may need more. Um, and then the other lines of thought are that in a few of our studies, when we gave 0.1 gram of creatine per kilogram or about seven to eight grams a day, um, it had some potential effects on certain aspects of daily living, but we did not see an increase in lean tissue and or strength. So the theory here was that maybe you need to give more as well. So we've never specifically looked at a higher dosing study, but I will uh, preface that the longest study that we've ever published just came out, and I'm sure we'll talk about this on bone, uh, where we gave about 10 to 11 grams a day for two straight years. So we theorized actually in that paper about anabolic resistance in older adults. And lo and behold, that higher dose did improve lean tissue mass and some measures of functional capacity, whereas 0.1 gram in the same population of older adults didn't. So there's a few emerging areas where we're thinking that maybe older adults might be able to respond uh, a little bit more favorably. And I would sort of use that uh, analogy with anabolic resistance. You know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, 20, 25 grams of protein seems to be very viable. When you get in the 50s and older, maybe you need 40, 45 grams or more uh, to, to overcome that anabolic resistance. Um, maybe creatine, which is very similar in the mechanisms to protein, uh, needs to be higher as well. But that's an area that our lab is currently looking at. Right. So just to kind of 
uh, make this clear for the listener, in midlife or early adulthood, that typical creatine dose for from a muscle mass and strength point of view is usually somewhere in the ballpark of three to five grams a day, right? That's correct, yeah. And what you're saying is for someone who's older, it could be seven, eight grams a day or, or perhaps a little bit more. Yeah, that's the key word there, could. Um, there is some studies that have shown five grams is very viable and effective in uh, healthy older adults. Uh, then there's other studies that show a bit more. The nice thing with the um, design of these randomized control trials, the safety profile of creatine is is excellent. We've looked at liver and kidney uh, for multiple years, and even at higher dosages, there's no greater adverse effects compared to placebo. So even if the individual is taking a bit more, which could lead to potentially some benefits, um, they should not experience any adverse effects. But I'm confident that if you were to take three to five grams a day, even in an older adult, that would eventually accumulate you might get a bit better response with a little bit more. Um, but now that's just on a muscle perspective. If we get into bone and brain research, that might dictate a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get there. R- remind, <laughs> remind us what the mechanism is by which creatine can have this effect on muscle mass and strength. Yes, so it's very multifactorial and it's a little bit different than protein. A lot of people think they go hand in hand, but there's a bit of difference. So a lot of uh, people who have tried creatine say, hey, they might have experienced a little bit of weight gain or maybe a little bit of bloating during the initial stages. And creatine is osmotic. So when it comes, when it leaves your small intestine and enters the blood, it likes to drag water into your muscle. And so the principle of osmosis will be when a solute is going into an area, water will maintain equilibrium. So you're going to have a little bit of water coming in. And by swelling the cell, or let's in this case muscle, that seems to turn on a whole bunch of beneficial things within the cell or under the the sarcolemma. Um, Your viewers may have heard of things called transcription factors or satellite cells or insulin-like growth factor one. They all seem to get increased in the presence of creatine when the cell is swollen. It has some ability to turn on proteins in the mTOR pathway. um, And it has actually has been shown to increase calcium and glycogen uh, kinetics. So when you put all those things together, it basically helps them uh, create an anabolic environment for muscle growth. I should be clear, it's never been shown to increase the rates of protein synthesis directly. So unlike whey protein or other protein which has, a creatine sort of works other ways. It may allow the muscle cell to just have a greater capacity to do more work or respond. But it also has been shown to decrease muscle protein catabolism. So it may maintain the integrity of the cell a little bit more. Um, And again, primarily in rodents or those long duration aerobic exercise, it may have the ability to decrease inflammation. And we know inflammation is a main precursor for muscle protein breakdown or oxidative stress. So there's probably about 10 purported mechanisms how it works, uh, but cell swelling seems to be something that needs to be there to turn on all these processes. You mentioned there that creatine might help the muscles do more work. The idea being there that if you do greater volume, rep sets uh, and or load that you get greater adaptations from your training? 
Yeah, that's kind of the subjective way that we uh, uh, we theorize it works. We've shown uh, in older adults, especially, that uh, creatine can increase training volume, which is actually correlated with per performance. But there's been many studies that have shown that creatine did not have a difference compared to placebo in training volume, yet it still uh, led to improvements. So not necessarily always dictated by training volume, there seems to be some cellular reasons why creatine could at least increase the size and or strength of the muscle. What happens if someone supplements with creatine but doesn't do resistance training? Does their strength or, or muscle size change? We only see an increase in uh, body water retention and or uh, some minimal benefits on muscle or neuromuscular function that's primarily ever been shown in older populations. Uh, if there are a few studies in younger populations, I'm not really that uh, uh, aware. Um, it seems like create, or sorry, exercise, primarily resistance training or weight training, needs to be there to create the stimulus for these processes to occur. With regards to the, the dose, you know, before we spoke about three to, to five grams per day, it might be a little bit more if, if you're you know, considered elderly, should we be thinking about creatine supplementation in terms of a, a fixed amount in grams like this for everyone, or should it be grams per kilogram of lean mass so that that dose is a bit more specific to how much muscle they have? Yes. Yeah, so this is a very good question and interesting. So the absolute usually is based on the convenience of just saying hey i'm going to take three to five grams or a half a teaspoon or the loading phase which a lot of athletes will adopt because they really need a, a quick rapid boost that's like 20 grams a day for five to seven days but there was a paper published in 2003 by adam persky and i think is one of the best reviews ever done on creatine and he made the case that the larger you are, you're going to probably have more creatine transport kinetics turned on. It's very similar to maybe protein. If you're 100 kilograms versus 50, maybe you're going to need more. And he made the good case that, uh, or theorized that the larger you are, you may have more muscle mass. And if you have more muscle mass, you may have more of these cre uh, creatine doorways that allow creatine in. It's very similar to GLUT4 with glucose. So we've been uh, toying with this idea ever since we started to base it on relative size. We get people to come into the lab, they go on a scale, and if they're 70 kilograms, they get seven grams a day. If they're 50 kilograms, they get five. And uh, we've shown that dose to be very effective resulting in no adverse effects. Um, so I think it's it's kind of just taking the idea of maybe the person who's an offensive lineman in the NFL or Aussie rules football, whatever, they might need more compared to someone who's a child, for example. So that's kind of why we did it. Um, and um, But there's two viable ways. It looks like you can go either way, an absolute or a, a relative dose. Mm -hmm. I'm at the stage now where I kind of know my size and I take a higher dose, just easy, um, easily measured twice a day. Yeah. And that relative dose, though, that, that you've used in your studies, actually, I've seen you've, you've used a, a few different doses, but uh, one of them is 0.1 grams per kilogram per day. Yeah, 99% of our studies use the 0.1. And in the only study in the longest trial in postmenopausal women, we thought about anabolic resistance. We ate 0.15 which was about 11 grams of monohydrate a day. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, 
you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. In your review on healthy aging, you mentioned that creatine supplementation with resistance training compared to placebo with resistance training has been shown to significantly improve uh, sit to stand time in, in adults in their 50s and, and 60s. Does this suggest that creatine could possibly reduce someone's risk of falls by improving strength or m motor coordination? Uh, that's an excellent question. And that was the theory. So uh, it improves sit to stand. Um, we've also just uh, showed that improved gait speed and uh, Stu Phillips and, and former colleague Michaela DeRees also showed that it had improvements in some functionality. And you're 100% right. Could creatine improve parameters of muscle? Could that lead to a little bit of balance or more functional capacity? And in the two studies that have looked at falls prevalence, um, Bruno Gualiano in Brazil and then the one we just talked about, uh, we didn't see any difference in the number of falls and or fractures. In other words, both groups fell 
Um, some had small instances of fractures, but creatine uh, did not have any adverse or greater effect. And of course, the, the number of falls and fractures was so small, we probably couldn't make any uh, justifiable conclusions there. But the theory could be that if the muscles and or bone get stronger, primarily in the, in the lower limb, the hip and or ankle, uh, maybe that could withstand some shear factors from falls. Uh, so that is our hope. But of course, we don't know the answer to that. And if we're thinking, I guess, more broadly about reducing the risk of, of fractures, so there's a couple of different things that are important here. One is reduce the risk of falling in the first place, which is what we're speaking about there. And things like strength and coordination will play into that and other things like polypharmacy and a bunch of different risk factors that can affect uh, falls risk. But then the, the other really important uh, aspect of preventing fractures is having strong bones that can right. withstand the force um, that's incurred with the fall and, and not break under that force. You mentioned before that you have this this two-year trial that you just published recently on postmenopausal women looking at creatine supplementation and different properties of, of bone um, health, bone strength. Does creatine supplementation make our bones stronger? Uh, they can. <laughs> so a little bit of the background, it, it was kind of by accident. When you do a DEXA scan, you can get some lean tissue. And of course, then you can get some measures of bone mineral. And there was a cellular study done early 2000s, which showed these osteoblast cells, which are the cells involved in bone formation, they became really energized in the presence of creatine. So theory was maybe our bone is responsive to supplementation as, as well. And then based on the, the law of muscle bone interaction, if you have more muscle, it's gonna pull on your bone throughout the day when you're performing activities of daily living or weightlifting, and maybe that could stimulate bone growth. Uh, and then the question is, well, which population would probably benefit from having greater bones? And of course, it's primarily um, postmenopausal females. And so we've done a couple studies now. And in the first study, it was a low sample size. It only had slightly over 30 postmenopausal females. We gave 0.1 gram per kilogram of creatine for a whole year of resistance training. And the reason for that bone takes a long time to turn over, um, at least about six months before you're looking at bone mineral density. Um, and we showed that creatine reduced the rate of bone mineral loss in the hip region compared to placebo. So they didn't increase, but again, the relative deficit was the people that just perform uh, resistance training uh, had a significant or decrease in bone mineral density, whereas the creatine group was more preserved. And then we thought, okay, that has some lines of evidence to now do a larger study. As you just alluded to, uh, it took about a decade to finally get from start to finish. Uh, we had 200 post or over 200 postmenopausal uh, females randomized. So the issue with nutritional research, any researcher will tell you, we're always limited with very small sample sizes. So that increases a lot of variability. But this was one of the rare creatine studies to have over 80% power. Um, and we then decided that let's do two years uh, of uh, resistance training. And this was machine-based, supervised three days a week. But we also wanted to add in six days of walking to achieve to the recommended guidelines of 150 minutes uh, per week. Um, and then we even did a higher dose, 0.15 gram. So let's summarize. They were taking about 11 grams a day, three times as much as what we typically recommend for young individuals from a muscle perspective. They did two years of exercise. And the results were kind of encouraging, but a little surprising. 
So you would think at that high dose with two years of exercise, everything would have went up. Um, actually, the only thing we shot, saw improvements was that it improved bone uh, geometry. So it increased bone strength and it sort of improved the strength of the bone primarily around the hip region, which we think is really important because that's an area uh, of clinical uh, displacement if you suffer a hip fracture. We also showed that it improved lean tissue and gait speed compared to placebo. So there was some advantageous effects. The counter argument is what if we had a group who did no exercise? I speculate that it would be catastrophic. Uh, two years you know, of exercise maintained some areas, improved strength a little bit. But if we had a group who did nothing, which is most of the world's population, that might have really catastrophic effects. So exercise needs to be there and creatine may give some slightly greater beneficial effects. We've also shown some muscle and bone benefits in males as well. So it's not just a cessation of estrogen. We think those things can have some favorable effects. Okay, I have a bunch of questions. Yeah, sure. Uh, about that. So in that study, so there was no there was no control group that that didn't do resistance training. The control Correct. group was resistance training plus six minutes of walking. Yes, yeah, six days of walking, correct. Six days of walking, sorry, but with a placebo versus- Yeah, and both groups got calcium and vitamin D on a daily basis to offset any of the bone-related mm. issues, yeah. Did bone mineral density improve, stay the same, or go down? I know there's no between-group differences, but did, did both groups experience an improvement or a reduction in bone mineral density um, with the, the resistance training in place that they had? Yeah, there was no overall uh, change, actually a slight reduction. Um, but again, bone mineral is so subjective to that. But again, even with creatine. So we now conclude that creatine does not increase bone mineral density. It may preserve the skeleton or make it a bit stronger. Um, that's sort of the architecture because we measured trabecular and cortical bone before. Um, but measuring by DEXA or the aerial shell, uh, we're not seeing any increase in bone mineral. It may help preserve the skeleton um, more than placebo. Is that type of result with bone mineral density with a resistance training program in place consistent with the overall body of, of literature? looking at this? Yeah, unfortunately, um, our skeleton is super stubborn. <laughs> and when you look at even studies that just look at weight training, you get a small increase in bone accrual. It may only be as little as one to 3% over years. So we don't really see a, a huge increase in bone mineral density with the technology that we're using. There's always standard error there. Um, not nearly as much as you get an increase in muscle mass. And in terms of that, that training program, I, I know from looking at some uh, of the studies that have attempted to improve bone mineral density with different types of training interventions, that uh, resistance training is important, but also kind of weight-bearing um, impact type exercise like hopping or skipping or jogging where the ground reaction force is greater than you would be subjected to on a daily basis also seems to be another stimulus that's important. Um, was that part of this? Was this like a multimodal kind of exercise intervention or was it pure resistance training? 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. It was actually just pure machine based. Um, so there was no multi, there was multi joint exercises, but there was no plyometrics or box jumps and things like that. And the walking was subjective. They just walked at, as briskly at their own pace, but that's an excellent point. We now know bone will respond very well to variety, strains and vectors. Um, complex training methods come into play, but to the population, it's very difficult. We're taking some special populations with maybe some mobility issues there. Uh, what could happen, that's a really good idea to do this maybe in young trained females or young physically active females, especially um, who may be more prone or able to do that type of training and maybe have some bone beneficial effects. And then we could extrapolate that to an older population. So that's a very good idea. You mentioned that there were some changes to bone architecture, and I think you, you said bone geometry. Just to double-click on this, what is the difference between bone mineral density, which people will probably have heard of quite a lot, and many people have gone out and done a DEXA scan. What's the difference between that and bone geometry? Yeah, there's a huge difference. So if your viewers have had a DEXA or a body composition scan at the hospital, um, basically it's only measuring the aerial or the, the cylinder, if you will, of the bone. And so when we measure bone mineral density or content, it's just simply measuring the weight of the bone. Um, uh, interestingly, with uh, QCT or high resolution PQCT, you can actually now separate what's inside the bone from cortical and trabecular. And we've shown actually using PQCT, that bone area primarily below the knee, uh, did improve in males and females on creatine. So it was actually having some additional lines of evidence that the geometry or architecture sort of under or in the bone uh, was improving, not just the shell of the bone. So it's a little bit more scientific. And so in this two year, um, trial with postmenopausal women, there were some changes to bone geometry that are suggestive that that bone may be able to withstand more force. Yes, that's an excellent interpretation because we did only use DEXA, but then we used software around the hip region to predict. Uh, our previous study for one year, um, we did see improvements using PQCT, but a huge limitation of this two-year study is we only use DEXA. And so is there any interest in in following these subjects for longer or seeing how the changes in bone geometry may translate to differences in in fracture incidents? Yeah, that's an excellent point. If we get funding, I would love to call back on these individuals in five or 10 years, especially. And that's kind of when you would see the, the, the effectiveness. And then you piggyback that off saying, well, what about now we do studies in young females? Maybe we can get the bone really large or strong when they're 18, 19 years of age, and maybe that'll offset the rate of bone mineral loss as we get older. Um, so the theory or the myth that it's, it's kind of never too early to work out, young males and females should be exercising, and hopefully we can build up the body. That'll offset the catastrophic effects of, of sort of biological process of aging. But there's a whole bunch of areas. We have several studies planned. Um, and we're also thinking now, what if we do the old, old age, like could creatine and exercise have potential beneficial effects for 80 and above? And, and we think it might. The timing of the intervention is super interesting. I remember reading a review on uh, bone mineral density and, and postmenopausal women. And it spoke about the fact that there seems to be quite a rapid loss of bone in the, the first handful of years after menopause. 
So if if the average age of menopause, I think, is about 51 or between 47 and, and 51. And if I recall correctly, you know, the average woman could lose five to seven and a half percent of their bone mineral density in that that first five year period. So I wonder, you know, whether the effect of creatine and the benefit could be dictated by when you intervene. So mm. if you if you intervene when a woman is fifty one versus intervening when she's sixty. Mm-hmm. And already experience that that rapid bone loss. Would there be a difference in terms of outcome? Yeah, that's exactly our line of thinking to look at premenopausal versus perimenopausal. And then we're in, is very interesting. We waited twenty, or our participants had to wait twenty four months from the cessation of the last menstrual cycle. So they were sort of well into the menopausal years. Uh, but you're right. What if we got it during the menopausal transition? into early menopause and late menopause. So that's an area where we'd have to do a series of studies with large sample sizes to sort of look at that. My guess is you would have to sort of piece together a number of studies to come up with some foundational evidence, yeah. So there was no difference in the the bone mineral density between the placebo and the the creatine group in the two-year study. But from your earlier pilot study, there was significant differences in, in bone mineral density Think femoral neck from from memory. Why why do you think that those the two studies had different results? Well, it's counterintuitive to what we think because you would do long weight training and a higher dose. So we don't think any of those things played a role. The big issue we think is statistical power. Whereas the later lattice or the the later study we had over two hundred individuals. In the first study, we only had over thirty. So the chance could have been by finding. It was significant. The effect size was was low to moderate, um, but it could be by chance of the people that were randomized in that, and that's kind of what we speculated. And the the changes in in architecture, from a mechanistic point of view, you mentioned before that it has been thought that you know creatine can increase muscle mass and strength, and that can can then result on on more force being put through the skeleton. You can you can you can lift a, a greater load. Is that the primary mechanism by which creatine is influencing bone architecture, or does creatine itself play a role in bone tissue and affect osteoblasts and and osteoclasts, these cells that are building and breaking down bone? It's a great uh, uh, analogy. We think it has a direct and indirect. Effect. So let's go with the one you just mentioned, the indirect. So the theory is if creatine and resistance training increases muscle mass, uh, muscle will pull on the bone, and maybe that's some of the stimulating effects. So that's an indirect way. But there's actually some good cellular uh, uh, data to, to suggest it actually has direct effects. So uh, as I alluded to, that study in the early 2000s simply showed that osteoblast cells in the presence of creatine sort of increased their activity. And so the theory would be if osteoblast cells have more activity in the presence of calcium, maybe they can sort of piece together more skeleton or more calcium into your bone. But we've actually shown now numerous times, creatine has been shown to uh, decrease markers of bone breakdown. So these things called NTL peptides or markers of collagen breakdown. So creatine has been shown now in several studies in young and older adults to reduce a collagen breakdown. So you could say, okay, we might have some benefits with osteoblasts, now we might actually preserve 
um, bone breakdown. It's kind of like a bisphosphonate, not nearly at the same level, but that's the theory. So when you get the uh, balance, maybe the bone could have a greater integrity over time. So even though the the kind of, I guess the results with regards to bone health are, are not clear cut at the moment, there's, there's some signal. We don't have long-term studies that look at the hard outcomes like fractures themselves. But I'm, I'm assuming that your position, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that because of the benefits for lean mass, um, potentially motor coordination and the safety profile that you, you spoke to, that creatine would still be worth supplementing to try and reduce our risk of fractures as we age, even if the effects on bone strength are somewhat debatable at this point. Yeah, I think it's something to consider on top of the resistance training cake because, as you just said, we've it has been shown to do this in, in some studies. The other big thing is our colleagues in Brazil have not shown any bone effects without exercise. So this is important. If you're taking creatine and you're expecting to get these magical powers, it's not going to happen. You need to do some form of exercise. And the dose seems to be higher. Uh, they looked at one in three grams a day for up to two years and they found no effects. Uh, the dose we've given and other labs have given is, is higher. Um, so it seems to be a little bit higher with exercise and you may be able to get some greater effects. And if that decreases the risk of falls or improves ability or, uh, uh, you know, more importantly, decreases fractures, uh, that's something to at least consider. What about brain function? You've mentioned a, a couple of times that the dosing for um, various aspects of brain function and cognition may be different to the dosing that we would use for um, increasing creatine levels in muscle tissue. What's the latest with regards to the role of, of creatine in our brain? Yeah, I think this is why creatine has become so popular all of a sudden, the brain and uh, the bone effects. So about a decade ago, it was clearly shown that creatine can accumulate in the brain. It can get past the blood-brain barrier. It's not very really easily. Um, and it can still accumulate. And, and again, a lot of uh, viewers may not know this, but the brain actually makes its own creatine, just like the liver. So the brain says, hey, wait a minute, I'm making my own creatine. I don't like a lot of things getting in past the endothelial cells in the blood-brain barrier. So maybe it's going to need a higher dose. And sure enough, there's probably only been 13 studies, to my count, that have looked at creatine and measuring brain creatine content. Um, and there's two schools of thought. You need a much higher dose, about 20 grams, um, or you can take a lower dose as we've talked about, but it seems like you need it for months on end. And probably based on endogenous synthesis or that blood-brain barrier, maybe you need higher dosages or longer to accumulate in the brain. And that's why a lot of the studies on brain are so interesting. Um, these individuals that may be having um, concussion or depression, um, or maybe now looking at creatine to help as a one potential uh, strategy to overcome some of these ailments. So I think the brain is the hottest topic. Uh, we published a really elegant review this year um, looking at all the studies that have looked at it from first getting in the brain and then on concussion, depression, neurological diseases such as Alzheimer's, um, multiple uh, sclerosis. So there's a huge area. My guess is the next 20 or 30 years will primarily be focused on cognitive or brain effects. Why do you think a, a higher dose is required in order to, to get brain levels of creatine 
to increase? Is it that the creatine that we ingest first and foremost has to saturate muscle cells and it's only once those are saturated that there's enough creatine available to go across the blood-brain barrier? Yeah, you're one of the rare that kind of gets it when that. I, I usually am interested when people sort of say, why does it take more? But you, you've hit the nail on the head. So remember, 95% of the creatine that we either synthesize or uh, ingest will go and be stored in your muscle. So the argument is, well, geez, you're going to have trickle amounts going to other tissues such as the brain. And so that maybe that's why we needed higher dosages. And then you would further argue, wow, the brain is very protective. It doesn't like the loud creatine in because it makes its own. So maybe that's why it only seems to be effective in compromised populations such as sleep deprivation, hypoxia, or depression, or concussion. A common denominator, when you look at the studies that have the magnets to measure brain creatine, a common denominator in those studies is that those clinical populations have reduced creatine stores compared to healthy controls. So maybe creatine is just being allowed to come in because the brain says, I need your help, or it's just bringing levels back up to normal. What I would hope is it elevates it more because the brain tissue, just like your muscle, uses creatine to maintain ATP, but it also seems to reduce inflammation. And one of the things you would speculate with traumatic brain injury, concussion, is the brain is kind of inflamed. Um, so one of the main mechanisms in the brain is reducing oxidative stress or inflammation. So uh, there's some elegant labs in the world, Serge Ostiak in Norway, uh, Bruno Gualiano and Hamilton Rochelle in Brazil. Uh, they're, they're doing some phenomenal research trying to look at the clinical aspects uh, of creatine. Yeah, I've had Hamilton uh, Rochelle on, on the show once before. He's a bit of a, a crowd favorite. What can we make? Is there any significance um, in the in the fact that vegetarians and vegans, if I'm correct, tend to have the same levels of brain creatine to omnivores, but have half or less the, the level of, of creatine in, in muscle cells. Yeah, and that was clearly shown with Hamilton and Bruno's study. So I love that segue because the theory is, well, how is it different? And I'm like, well, it's quite different. We now know that if you just like have vegetarians versus an omnivore, the vegetarians have way lower creatine in their muscle. But you would also speculate, why isn't it that it must be the same in the brain and it's not. So that blood-brain barrier is very protective. And remember, the vegan brain and the omnivore brain is producing creatine. So it is interesting that the muscle is totally different. The brain levels seem to be very stable across uh, habitual dietary preference, whereas the muscle is not. And then again, that opens the door. Is it different in bone? We don't know that as well. Is there any significance to the the form of creatine in our body or, or how it's stored my understanding is that some of it is bound to phosphate and then some of the the creatine is is free creatine is is there any significance to that and and differences between um, different populations or people that are healthy or unhealthy yeah, the amount of creatine coming in or synthesized uh, is basically into two things. So when you hear total creatine, it's this phosphorylated compound. And then, of course, you have free creatine. And actually, it's a reversible uh, uh, equation or reaction that occurs in two areas of the cell, the mitochondria and the cytoplasm. 
and they just reverse based on activity or diet and things like that. And um, about 66% of creatine is in the form of fossil creatine and the remaining third is free creatine and they can cycle back and forth. But it's the fossil creatine that we're really focused on because it donates that phosphate group, if you will, to maintain ATP during exercise. If we're thinking about trying to increase creatine levels in the brain, I've I've read a, a few people um, who have written about this that seem to suggest that um, glycosiamine, I think I think that's how you pronounce it, a precursor to creatine. This this might be a more effective way of increasing brain creatine. Is that true or something that you've come across? Yeah, it's guanidino acetate uh, or citic acid is GAA, and uh, a good colleague of mine has kind of pioneered this with a patent, and they've shown that these precursors can sort of squeak through the blood-brain barrier. Uh, they resemble creatine, so that's why they're allowed to get through the doorway, um, and they seem to be able to squeak through uh, and accumulate a little bit easier. The argument is, well, the brain will make creatine and may not make this analog. So that's why it's allowed to be taken in and it can have some beneficial effects. So there's some preliminary data to suggest that as well, but we don't know if it improves performance um, or has the health outcome measures the same. Uh, so they need to have some comparison studies with that as well. So where are you at today? I guess with regards to, to maybe, if you don't mind commenting, your own personal kind of dosing strategy for creatine is that based off of the literature looking at muscle mass and um, bone health and the kind of 0.1 or 0.14 grams per kilogram that we spoke about before or are you also seeing signal in the literature looking at cognition and, and long-term brain health in some of these you know studies where it seems that you, you need to use a higher dose yeah, and it's changed, you know, before we knew about the bone and brain and even the, the immune system, um, it was simply three to five grams a day. And of course, everybody was happy and it was you're getting a lot of benefits. And then you look at the as I get older and the population gets older, the bone uh, importance and then, of course, the brain. And so when I did the math, three to five grams for muscle, about eight to 10 for bone and then on average is about 20 or longer. So I've been taking about 10 grams a day for the last two years. I also take that for potentially some of the anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, when you go to these aging sarcopenia conferences, one of the big hallmarks of aging is this uh, chronic low-grade inflammation we're having all day. And I think as we get older, we say, geez, my aches and pains are, are there and um, compared to a younger individual. So I take about 10 grams a day. Um, I can take even more. And of course, if I have an excess, I might just excrete it uh, in my urine. Um, so I'm, I'm fine with that. But the days that you forget or whichever, it's, uh, it accumulates. Um, the other thing is, once the muscle is saturated, it probably takes at least a month for those levels to come back to baseline. And I've talked to some brain researchers and we theorize it's five weeks in the brain. Um, so if you go on vacation or you miss your creatine, you know, you don't have a freak out. Uh, you could either have a serving of seafood or, or uh, red meat or it's still going to be there. Activity will help maintain that because it helps maintain type 2 muscle fibers. Uh, so that's some of the interesting things. And the other nice thing with this is the timing is irrelevant. You can take creatine at any time of the day. I wouldn't go any lower than one gram servings because in 1992, that dose just wasn't high enough to accumulate in the blood. I think maybe three is probably the lowest amount, maybe even two. 
You can break that up into multiple servings throughout the day, um, or you can take it in one bolus. So it's not like, it's probably similar in theory to protein, but you need so much protein throughout the day, you're always conscious of it. I think creatine is something that you can just sort of take. Um, the consistency is there um, multiple times a day, once a day, whichever you like, and, and see the effects. Is there a, a clinical indication or is the research too preliminary for going above 10 grams a day towards that 20 grams a day for particular cognitive benefits? Is there a way for people to know if someone's listening and thinking, okay, my brain makes creatine, but I want to know if it's making enough. Am I someone who has you know, suboptimal levels of creatine in my brain and therefore I would benefit from having a 20 gram a day dose such that I would saturate my muscle cells and then hopefully increase brain creatine as well. No, as it stands right now, it's all speculation um, based on kind of extrapolating pieces of the puzzle. So individuals unfortunately can be born with grain deficiency syndrome and those individuals respond very well to a small dose. But we just published a study this year looking at dosing 10 grams versus 20 on cognitive performance, we saw no difference between the dosages, but these were in young, healthy individuals. So my thought on cognition has changed a bit. If you're a healthy individual, adequate sleep, you're not having any major stressors in your life, I don't think you're gonna experience any benefits from creatine. The studies that seem to show benefits are in those that are sleep deprived, maybe jet lag would fall into that category as well, uh, hypoxia, or chronic uh, conditions such as um, maybe concussion syndrome. Those are the things that we think might have some application. But for the healthy person, they say, geez, I sleep well, um, my weight is stable, I can exercise. I don't think you're gonna get any noticeable effects. It's kinda only in clinical populations. And to that point, only in certain ones. We're not seeing any benefits in Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. We see some in muscular dystrophy in young boys with that condition. Uh, we don't really see any in people with multiple sclerosis either. Maybe long-term clinical trials have to be there. It is showing some promise in people with diagnosed depression. And again, a clinical marker there is that they have reduced creatine stores in certain areas of the brain. Uh, and then when creatine is given in combination with medication, no study has ever looked at creatine uh, without medication, so that's really important. And never come off your medication for those listening, always get medical clearance. Uh, creatine has been shown to have some small favorable effects in anxiety and depression. Um, so those are the areas that are emerging and there's only been one study in children with concussion um, and that's an area that uh, seems to be the biggest focus. How are they measuring the creatine stores in the, the brain in those studies? I'm assuming that's not something that you can you can access. It's kind of like an MRI for the brain, magnetic uh, resonance spectroscopy. There's only a few uh, universities that have the magnet. It's super expensive. And that's how you would measure this. Uh, you're not going to do the brain biopsy. So that's how you measure the, the uptake. And, and that's a, a, another big area. Just like muscle, we kind of always want to know how much you have to start with. So maybe some of the variability in these studies is we don't know how much you have to start in the brain. We don't know the rate that it's naturally making it. Um, so that's why I think the next 20 or 30 years, we'll have to focus on advanced technology in the brain. And then we got to look at the areas of the brain, the white matter and the gray matter. Is there differences 
is there differences in healthy people versus um, head trauma or depression? Those, are, I, I, again, I think it's going to be the huge focal area and hopefully more uh, uh, money is put into research funding in those areas. What about creatine supplementation during pregnancy and or breastfeeding? I think yes. I, I read a, a review a few years back that was, it was looking more broadly at women and yeah. safety. And the conclusion from that was that, you know, across the board, um, creatine supplementation in, in women appeared to be very safe. There was, you know, no serious adverse effects, um, but there was some commentary around maybe a lack of, of data looking at creatine supplementation during pregnancy and breastfeeding. Is that something that you've looked at? Yeah, it's probably the most novel area of speculation, and you'll be happy with this, but Stacey Ellery, is, Ellery in Australia is probably the world's leader in this area. And so she just two days ago put out another study and review, and they've looked at animal model with pregnancy and in potentially humans. And when I talk to Stacey, it's lots of caution here. So first off, if you're pregnant, thinking of pregnancy, fetus, whichever development, always speak to your doctor, but the existing data has shown potential benefits for fetal development, lack or decrease in um, complications during the pregnancy, and potentially maintaining some of the energy bioenergetics during pregnancy for the female. Uh, we don't think creatine is transported or transferred to breast milk, uh, but that's an area that needs to be looked at a little bit more. Uh, but as it stands, and this is my understanding, creatine has some potential beneficial effects for not only the fetus, but the mother. Um, the dose is typically usually lower, a lower dose, three to five grams, um, but severe caution needs to be considered. Please talk to your doctor. Um, and again, more safety aspects need to be there. We're not really seeing any adverse effects, maybe a little bit of weight gain, um, but we're not seeing any huge detrimental effects as it currently stands. And I could echo that exact same analogy for uh, creatine in children. It's the same thing. It's very beneficial. We're not seeing any adverse effects, but we need to do more blood biomarkers there as well. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think a number of parents uh, are probably a bit fearful of of giving their children creatine or or have have been kind of made to feel fearful. I kind of use the analogy as it's kind of no different than eating protein. If you give chicken or salmon or, or red meat to your, your child, creatine is recognized by the body at a lower dose. And all the studies that have looked at regular dosing patterns, it's been shown to be very safe, uh, no adverse effects or no greater adverse effects compared to placebo. And two good colleagues of mine in the U.S. are looking at blood biomarkers now. And my guess is it's not going to have any adverse effects because it's naturally produced. Our body recognizes it and it'll probably have the same benefits, if anything, uh, similar to protein or carbohydrate that's coming into the child's diet. Did Stacey Ellery's uh, review that you mentioned there that she published a couple of days ago um, that spoke to potential benefits during, during pregnancy, did that speak about dose? I have not read the newest one. In the previous ones, they've simply looked at the three to five grams as well, because most times the only one studies that typically do the, the relative dose are in my lab or in Phil Chilibeck's lab, and we're typically looking at older individuals or um, athletes. So the dose would be lower, the three to five grams. So if a female is listening, say, I don't, you know, I'm going to get medical clearance, I would strongly recommend to start with the lowest dose, no more than three even when you get medical clearance, and then you can see how you respond over time. Okay, let's finish with a, a few more 
of the practical questions that people okay. uh, probably have. So you mentioned your personal strategy is about 10 grams a day. I'm assuming based off reading your studies and, and also my conversation with Eric Rawson, that there's no need to take any form of creatine other than creatine monohydrate. That's correct. So every study, pretty much the safety and efficacy is based on monohydrate and monohydrate simply means creatine linked to water. When you ingest it, it's identical to what's being synthesized in the brain or uh, liver. And that's probably why monohydrate has such an exceptional safety profile. And is creatine monohydrate, is that kind of dime a dozen? I know that a lot of brands now are using the branded form Crea Pure, which yes. I've seen has also been used in studies. And I think some of your studies yep. is, is there any reason to kind of believe that that might be high quality or different to other brands that are selling creatine monohydrate that are not Crea Pure? Yeah, no, at the end of the day, the key is that it's monohydrate. And then the other thing to look for that it's been third party or independently tested for lack of purities or safety. So make sure the individual is looking for a product that has third party tested, that's independent. So when you're buying the product or whichever it is creatine, and then of course it's monohydrate. And at the end of it, any monohydrate, if it's pure, it's gonna have the same effect. And do you have a preference for whether that is within a blend or an isolated ingredient? Yeah, so I've seen people dry scoop. I'm like, well, creatine loves water, so put it in solution. I put five grams in my breakfast in the morning. I usually have Greek yogurt with uh, protein and collagen and, and some berries. And then I actually drink, I put five grams in a water bottle and I drink that during my workout. I find it very easy and convenient. Um, so the bioavailability will be the same dry scoop in food or in solution. It's really up to the person to maintain consistency. Speaking about how you're consuming it or what you're consuming it with there's there's uh been talk i guess for a long time that consuming your creatine with carbohydrates can be a helpful way for kind of driving that creatine into to muscle cells is is that because insulin helps with getting creatine into to muscle cells and is that also why you have it with protein yeah, no, uh, yes, for two reasons. So ins you're right, insulin can uh, definitely augment creatine uptake into the cell, but the dose of insulin you need is super physiological. It's very, very high. Um, the lucky thing and the nice thing is from a population or health perspective, protein and i.e. whey protein is very gluconeogenic or insulinogenic, and that can actually have uh, the same effect. Mark Tarnopolsky uh, compared a study showing it had the same effect. And the nice thing with protein, you get all the essential amino acids. So I prefer protein. I take in a bit of carbohydrates for glycogen resynthesis as well. But one of the best ways to increase creatine uptake is exercise. Muscle contractions will stimulate the doorways in your muscle to allow creatine in. So that's why one of the theories is to consume creatine in close proximity to exercise, either before, during, or after. It's when blood flow to your muscles is there, the transport kinetics is there. Um, and we're looking at that uh, uh, in the winter term to see does the timing really matter in those three areas. But that's a really interesting, viable way that I think can provide at least consistency. But there's some mechanisms to suggest it might be a viable way to consume it. I think you mentioned that you split your dose mm -hmm. across the day. So what are the, if any, uh, the advantages of splitting the dose versus just having 10 grams in one single bolus? 
So the theory is that smaller, more frequent dosages may lead to an increase in absorption and retention. It's, it's very similar to the theory with protein. Can you take 200 grams of protein in one meal? You can, but you're not going to use all that from a muscle protein perspective. So the theory here is that if you take smaller dosages, maybe you're going to absorb all of it and retain it. Less will be degraded to creatinine. So I take two five-gram dosages. We actually have a study plan where we're going to do five two-gram dosages. Does that make any difference compared to a 10-gram bolus dose to answer that exact question? And that's going to be coming up in the new year. So could repeated smaller dosages be different than a bolus? We don't know. And it, I think it'd be cool that there was no difference. Then the consumer could say, I can take it however I like. I know I'm going to get the same effect. Yeah, five two-gram doses a, a day might lead to slightly different adherence somehow, yep. I think. That's, that's exactly <laughs> right. What if you forget and, and things like that? So uh, I think in today's society, we're just trying to make things easy um, and, and try to take away the pressures. And that's why I'm, I'm glad that the timing of creatine, just like the timing of protein, may be irrelevant. You can just sort of eat and enjoy life and go on with your day. If someone's going to start creatine supplementation they, they have never had it or they're mm -hmm. starting for the for the first time in in a long time so we can assume that their um cells are, are rather depleted right. is there an advantage to doing a sort of quote-unquote loading phase mm -hmm. a, a higher dose sort of period for a week or so and then shifting to that maintenance phase versus just going straight into a three or five grams a day dose yeah, the only advantage of the rapid loading phase is that it will obviously rapidly saturate the muscle and you may get a slightly quicker response. Um, the downfall is that's the time we see some antidotal GI tract irritation, uh, acute water and or weight retention. Um, but again, the lucky thing is uh, three grams a day will saturate the muscle just the same way. It'll just take a month. So it really depends. For the athletes, the World Championships coming up, if you really need a fast, rapid boost, or boost the uh, loading phase is probably something to consider. But for everybody else listening that says, hey, I kind of am interested in creatine for the lifelong journey, three grams a day from a muscle perspective will saturate your muscles, and you can take that uh, every day. And, of course, we've talked about if you want to boost that up to get maybe some bone and or brain benefits, um, that's very viable as well. I've heard you say that if you're worried about water retention, dividing your dose out across the day could be a useful strategy. My question, I guess, that I have with this is earlier, I believe you, you kind of mentioned that it might be the swelling of the muscle and the pulling of the water into the muscle tissue that is leading to some of these beneficial changes that we're seeing from a hypertrophy or strength um, point of view. So could it actually be that spreading the dose out across the day while it might lead to less water retention is actually reducing some of the ergogenic benefits that come with creatine? Excellent analogy. Uh, it's, it's something I've thought of. It will accumulate or have water drag every time it's, it's being uh, continually taken in. But that's an excellent question. Could the bolus cause more of a tidal wave, if you will? Whereas more smaller dosages cause more of a consistent trickling in effect. Does that lead to any of the differences? We just don't know. And that's something that we're going to be considering with that dosing study. What about this idea of cycling creatine? Do we need to, to, to come off of creatine and give our body a, a rest 
um, or is it something that we can just take you know, on an ongoing basis? Yeah, we see no evidence in humans that you downregulate your natural endogenous synthesis with chronic creatine supplementation. Uh, we've actually given it continuously for years. So the theory is that there's no evidence to suggest you have to cycle it. There's no evidence to suggest you get greater effects by cycling it versus continuous. And that's a study that desperately needs to be done. And ironically, it's never been shown. Um, but in theory, there's no reason that you need to cycle it. But if you say, hey, I, I can't afford creatine or I'm traveling, keep in mind, it stays in your muscles for at least a month. So you could cycle it indirectly and still experience benefits. And you mentioned before that having creatine sort of right before a workout or during a workout in your water or after is a good strategy for increasing the, the uptake of that creatine into to muscle cells. But just to be clear, people should be supplementing on both training and non-training days? Ideally, yes. Now from a whole body perspective. So there is some studies that have shown you can just take creatine on the days you work out and get muscle benefits. But I now think of, well, wait a minute, it wants to trickle into other areas. And I think from a consistency perspective, it may be best to take it every day. And how quickly would someone experience benefits and what might they they notice in order to know that it's working and they're actually a responder yeah i it might come down to the dosing protocol i think the the loading phase you could experience results maybe in as little as a few weeks probably from a strength or a exercise capacity perspective but if you start with the lowest dose it'll probably take you more uh, time say maybe a month to notice I could get a few more repetitions or my clothes is getting a bit tighter or I can run faster recover so it probably comes down to the dosing paradigm or protocol you're doing and are there actually I guess quote-unquote true non-responders you know a percentage of the population that literally would be wasting their money if they were taking creatine yeah, we know it from a muscle perspective. Yeah, if you have a high amount already in the muscle. So on average, the, the average human can store about 160 millimoles or just think 160 grams of creatine. Well, we can only store a small amount. We had we start out about 80 to 120. So there are some people who can have be already at the ceiling. And I would guess if you're on a carnivore diet, you're probably at the ceiling when it comes to muscle and potentially bone and brain. Um, if you're eating three steaks a day and two salmons, uh, you're probably getting an adequate amount. So it might come down to, to your habitual diet. Right. So if you're on a carnivore diet, you probably don't need to be thinking about creatine, but yeah. perhaps glycogen. Well, I want to think yes. about and fiber. glycogen stores. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. um, this is more of a study design question for okay. you, and it's... It, it, it's actually, you know, in your um, wheelhouse. Okay. What do you think about studies comparing muscle protein synthesis, uh, muscle mass, and strength between omnivorous diets and plant-based diets? And and one of Hamilton Rochelle's study comes to mind here. There's a few that that don't match creatine intake, given given the differences in creatine levels in in muscle tissue at baseline that would exist. Yeah between people adopting a, an omnivorous diet and those adopting a vegan or a plant-based diet? That's an outstanding um, um, idea. I've thought about this as well because the theory with plant-based diets on protein, you just need to eat more. And then the question is, and that was brought up, well, if they're eating more protein, are they getting it from animal sources? And maybe that group 
had a lot more. And so you would have to match um, creatine or give creatine to the vegan or plant-based group. And maybe that would offset because a lot of the arguments against protein is maybe one group was getting a supplement and they were eating more. Um, and if they're getting over 1.6 grams, that could be adequate. But that's an excellent point. And that's something that can be looked at. The difficulty is trying to adequately determine how much creatine you're naturally producing. You need to do biopsies and or measured in the blood. And you need to know how much you're eating. And a lot of our technology from food records to frequency questionnaires is really limited on how much creatine is naturally in your food. And then that piggybacks on when you're heating the meat, does that denature some of the creatine? And we think it does as well. So there's a lot of issues with that. Yeah. And, but it's really an important point. Yeah. Yeah, maybe one way of getting around this, and I'm just thinking out loud, is just to have both groups having five grams a day. Yes. Or or some sort of dose that you would know would fully saturate yeah. the, the the muscle, muscle cells in both right. scenarios. So then the only difference is the source of protein. Right. And you would do the exact same thing. We would probably do muscle biopsies. And then hopefully, uh, if the vegan group was at, just say, 80, and the omnivore group was already at 120, you would just difference over time, they would eventually get to 160, and then any excess would be excreted because now we're just focusing on the muscle perspective. Yeah, That's an excellent yeah, way to look at it. Super interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We spoke about water retention, and I think uh, a lot of uh, people, I certainly get a lot of questions, and they seem to, to, to come mostly from women who are concerned with creatine and, and gaining weight and seeing the number on the scales go up. And we've spoken about water retention. Um, does creatine affect body fat levels? Mm. It's an excellent and good timing of the question. We uh, sort of published two reviews in the last two years looking at all the data, looking at measures of fat mass. And collectively, if you're 18 and above, uh, creatine has been shown to decrease body fat percentage. So let me repeat that. It's been shown to decrease body fat percentage, but by a, me a measly 1%. Uh, it doesn't have any decrease in absolute fat mass. So all we can conclude is if the number's going up on the scale, it's likely a net water or a net retention of body water. But if it's going up on the scale over time, which actually it doesn't actually go up that much, it's probably and likely... Um, some type of lean tissue mass measure, organ, which usually doesn't occur, maybe it's hydration and or lean tissue. But we're pretty confident looking at all the data, your body fat won't go up. Um, and, and that's something that's encouraging, hopefully from a population perspective. And then a question that mostly comes from men, but not exclusively, is whether or not creatine can increase levels of dihydrotestosterone, <laughs> or DHT, right. and, and therefore potentially promote hair loss. Yeah, I get this question literally every day. Uh, so I've sort of changed my view on how I answer this. So the, the world famous rugby study that was done, geez, over a decade ago, uh, young individuals, resistance training, training for rugby, um, we're taking 20 grams a day uh, of creatine and then measured DHT. And sure enough, it did go up. But just like you go to a doctor, you're, you have a range for cholesterol, blood glucose, their DHT levels did go up. And then when you look at the study, it was serum DHT. And then when you go to biology and genetics textbooks, serum DHT doesn't really correlate with follicle loss or hair thinning. So when someone says, has cre does creatine cause baldness? I say, we have no idea. No study has ever shown hair follicle loss 
or thinning, that single study that has been shown to be correlated with DHT simply shows nothing really. All it shows is the hormone went up. Um, so the people ask every day, does creatine cause baldness? Uh, I'm a bad messenger, obviously, if people can see me, but I will say that I've studied over a thousand people in the lab and not a single person has come to me and said that their hair was thinning. So I'm not sure why the study has never been done. You would simply need to look at a cross-section of the head uh, and then measure cross-sectional area and or hair follicle count. Um, it sounds very elaborate and daunting, um, but again, the theory has not been replicated. Uh, we're not seeing any differences in free testosterone, DHT, or any other hormonal influence with that. Uh, but when I look in the mirror, I'm wondering, God, I think I was going bald before I started creatine, so hopefully it never <laughs> accelerated it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's going to be comforting to a lot of people. Because um, there's many it, people who take creatine and they're not bald, so that's good news as well. Right. Is it is it true that creatine supplementation could have a negative effect on liver and kidney function? Yeah, this is probably the most studied area, and I'm very happy to say that when you look at all the randomized clinical trials, um, compared to placebo, we're not seeing any adverse effect, not only on renal, but cardiovascular or blood cell count. And in that long-term study we just gave in postmenopausal females, you would also consider a population that is probably uh, has a little bit of organ uh, deterioration as we get older. Um, 11 grams of creatine for two straight days had no adverse effect on measures of kidney or liver function. And when you combine that with all the other clinical studies, uh, we don't see any uh, adverse effects, even now at higher dosages. So I think it's one of the, 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 the safety pro profile of creatine is very high as well as the efficacy. What about people that have existing kidney disease or is there anyone that shouldn't take creatine? Yeah, so in mice, it's been shown to have, if the individuals have pre-existing uh, uh, kidney or liver uh, abnormalities to get medical clearance and maybe creatine at higher dosages may not be advised. So uh, for anybody listening, if you have a family history of renal or uh, uh, liver hepatic issues or any other issues, obviously uh, all our research participants are advised to get medical clearance or a clearance form. And that's something that we always promote. Are there any blood tests to keep an eye on that are, I guess, a bit of a, a window into your biology and whether the, the liver or the kidney are uh, under stress from, from the creatine that you're taking? Yeah, if you're not taking creatine and you go to your doctor and when they measure on the blood requisition form, they'll always measure some kidney and liver enzymes. If they're elevated uh, for no apparent reason, in, independent of excessive exercise or lifestyle, uh, that could be an indication that there's something causing an abnormality. Um, but that also leads to when you take creatine, uh, this is also important. So a lot of doctors around the world use an estimated uh, filtration rate uh, to measure kidney function. And remember, when creatine is locked in the muscle, uh, it gets diffused or it leaves the muscle in the form of something called creatinine. And blood creatinine is used to measure in that equation kidney function. So please note, if you're taking creatine supplementation, it's highly likely you're going to have elevated creatinine, which will indirectly be a false positive for kidney failure. So a lot of people, when they go to their doctor, please make sure you tell your uh, nephrologist or GP that you're on creatine because usually it elevates these enzymes. And we simply know it's not causing any adverse effects because when you take away creatine, those organs go back to normal. If they didn't, they would be in failure. 
And so with that elevated creatinine, you'll also sometimes see a lowering of the estimated glomerular filtration rate That's at the correct. same time. It's showing that the filtration or the, the tubules in the kidneys are not extracting it from the blood. So if it's elevated in the blood, that says the kidneys are not filtering into the urine. So it's an indication, yes, absolutely. Okay, and last one before I, I let you go. I know you have a meeting with one of your students. How common are the, the gastrointestinal side effects? And is there is there any way for people to, to, to kind of reduce these? Yeah, they're very rare. We usually only see them on a high, high dose, such as the loading phase. And anecdotally, when people combine creatine in food, it really seems to decrease any chance of GI tract because you're absorbing all those other nutrients as well. And so when someone says, I'm very sensitive to creatine, I try to high dose, I say maybe mix it with food and that'll help decrease any of the GI tract issues. And lastly, are there any exciting studies that you're perhaps working on or trying to get funding for that would be worth us being aware of? Yeah, we have eight planned, and then we've asked the federal government to look at creatine and home-based exercise uh, in sarcopenic adults. Uh, but we're also going to be looking at that in individuals that don't have sarcopenia. So with rubber tubing and bands after COVID, we tried to come up with ideas. What if a pandemic comes again and we need to work out at home? How can people still be active? And there's some new studies that with these therabands have been shown to be effective. So those are the areas. And then we're finally going to answer, does the timing matter? We're going to look at creatine on training days versus just on non-training days. So that's going to really um, sort of conclude, does blood flow really matter? And those are all planned for after Christmas. Yeah. Great. Well, Darren, this has been super informative. Um, how can people find you online if they'd like to yeah, stay in touch? I, and no, I thank more. you. I think the easiest is on Instagram at Dr. Darren Cando. Uh, I try to post a lot of things that are, are coming up. I, I just posted Stacey Ellery's uh, a review on creatine and pregnancy the other day. And, and I see, I think the Instagram is the easiest way. So at Dr. Darren Cando. Okay, great. We'll, we'll link to that in the uh, show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.